three, two, one. Shame is something we teach our children, not something born of their authentic experiences. So, so much about it for me is to make sure my kid is okay. You may know our next storyteller as the person who has been Hillary Clinton's right hand, arm, and more since 1996. And, or maybe you know her from headlines relating to her former husband and then U.S. Representative Anthony Weiner on his sexting scandals. But in the following storytelling session, we are being reintroduced to Homa Abedin, a mother, adventurer, writer, someone who enjoys talking to strangers and talking about her faith as a Muslim woman. We kick off the interview critiquing the interviews she's been recently doing, for the first time ever, by the way. She's a behind-the-scenes kind of gal. And while we deeply get into faith, controversial politics, mental health, and the problem around asking people, quote, why they stay in harmful relationships, the intention of this conversation is rooted in openness, reflections, and story. Because as Huma says about why she decided now to take a center stage, if you let someone else tell your story, they are writing your history. I know this conversation will generate some feelings. Here's a small content warning for suicide and trauma. And I would like to humbly welcome you to this episode of Podcast Noor. Okay, let me tell you something, Kuma. Hi, I'm so happy that you're here. This is very, very exciting. And it wasn't really hard to do research into your personal interviews that you've been doing around this book because you typically don't do interviews, which you talk about in all the interviews. And so there's like a handful of really, you know, prominent conversations that you've been having. So I've watched basically all of them. I actually woke up at 4 a.m. this morning and I watched all of them. And that's impressive. (laughs) It was, I felt like I had spent, so far I feel like I've spent my entire morning with you. I'm not going to lie. I have this book in hand that I'm using a little paper towel as a bookmark. (laughs) And I've been watching you on the television. And when we spoke yesterday, I specifically like talked to you about and wanted to let you know about how I wanted to approach this conversation. And I had, and I had done that when I said I wanted it to be more of the casual flowing, naturally flowing, intimate conversation. Cause that's how we do storytelling sessions here. And as someone right now, who's looking at like mainstream media through a really critical lens and spent all this time watching your interviews, which you did a great job in, I couldn't help but feel, um, annoyed at, the questions that you kept getting and the way that your story was still being framed. And to me, you have this 500 plus page memoir that you've spent years working on. It's been a project that has been going on for years and we'll get into that. And it isn't until, I mean, it has to be a person who's going to decide to pick up the book and read for themselves to really start to get to know people. But the, the, the main storytellers who have these platforms are still going to frame your story. And what I found is that like oftentimes still in these conversations, your story was still being framed through the lens of other people and specifically men. 
or specifically like this deficit thing like hey after all of these years of going through this scandal now let's hear what you have to say and I'm like okay but she also just wrote this whole book about it in in a way that like we're still talking about someone else that isn't you and before we get into like the nitty-gritty of this conversation I want to do some intention setting and I would love to hear from you like what your intention for this conversation is and what you want to let go of from the typical conversations that you've been having like do you even feel a type do you feel a type of way or do you walk away knowing that that's just business no I do walk away I've been first of all Nora I'm so excited to be in this conversation with you um I, I know I'm not supposed to say this um but I've admired you from afar for a long time. And I think it's really impressive to see the way you've approached your conversations, which are Thank candid you. and honest and really open. And so there's a reason I, I reached out to you and said, please have me on your podcast. So I've done <laughs> it. I know I'm not supposed to do it, but I'm doing this. Thank you for having me on. And Thank I, you. <laughs> and I do feel I, <clears throat> the only thing I regret is I, I just discovered how old you are because now I realize like I'm so much older than you. But let's put that aside. Um, I don't walk away from these conversations um, feeling anything other than, and this might be a strange word to share with you, I do feel um, a, a liberation and a confidence um, in that you know, I always believed um, that this is a good story. And I think mm. that is the thing about so many of women's lives that we just don't really know or explore about. You're right. There are lots of headline grabbing moments in my life. But I open I open my book saying I grew up. Those are the first words. No one has actually asked me about that. You were the only person who's kind of gone there with me, I, I grew up surrounded by stories. Stories are what animated me, what, you know, to, I lived in the Middle East, as you know, most of my life. And so the worlds I created in my head were in the books my parents handed to me, whether they were African novels or they were books my dad bought at wherever in, in the UK from London or back here from B. Dalton. And they filled my mind. And so for me, I've, I've just really enjoyed telling the story, putting it all down. And I'm, Yes, I do think it's business is business for them. And you would think that there would be more sort of creative or different kinds of questions for them to ask. But I think it's like every, it's almost like everyone comes to the interview with a card. We have to ask her this, this, this and this. And they do. And I try every time to get my intention in, which mm. is. Yeah, I noticed you, that in your answers like you, it, which is amazing because you answer the questions from a place of healing. Like even. Yes. Yes. Even when people have brought up certain things like suicidal ideation, which you briefly mentioned in the book, you still yeah. come at it from a place of healing. When you, people say like, you know, you could have written this book years ago when everything yes. was at the height of whatever and it could have done better. And you were like, yes, but that book would have come from a very angry place. And That's so great. you're very aware of all of that. So I want to I always start out these conversations by doing a heart check in like today in this moment right now. How is your heart doing? My heart is doing really amazing, really strong, really, I feel a, a tremendous amount of power in my heart. Is this a, a feeling, feeling that you, yeah, I can, I can feel it even radiating from you. I felt it the last time I saw you, which was, I think, a couple months ago. Yeah. I, like, could feel that energy from you, and it, it just felt different. 
it felt new it felt like freer maybe yeah yes and nor you know i um i i do believe in fate i do believe things in life happen for a reason and you might not remember this but we were seated next to each other mm-hmm. at an event we both <laughs> go to very yeah. regularly and we are never seated next to each other yeah and yeah, that, that was, was a so reason and i grabbed you and we had this amazing conversation you me and adam and 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 look, look at where we are today. I'm sitting in. I you know. know. Shout out to Prubble. And you're sitting yours. Shout out to Prubble. <laughs> I mean, he who is an amazing connector of people and an amazing yeah. friend too. So I'm, I'm feeling good. I do feel liberated. Wow, I love that, and thank you for sharing that energy with us today. So, the question that came to me while I was watching all of the interviews is. How would you write your own introductory bio? And I know that this is a very tough question because like when people tell me to introduce myself, I'm like, I don't want to do that. I just want to show up because I don't like to talk. I don't know how to approach it. The way we write traditional bios is not something that sits well with me. But you are somebody who has been defined by the most powerful of people, the the most Mm. um, Mm. in the world. And people have mentioned your names in the most intimate of spaces and the most public of spaces. So Huma Abedin, today, if you were to introduce yourself to a stranger, how would you write that bio in a few sentences? I would say I am for, I'm a mother of an absolutely gorgeous, perfect 10-year-old. I'm a product of immigrant parents who came to this country, gave up everything and sacrificed and gave me a life I couldn't have had any other way. And I grew, you know, it's why I start the book this way, Nora. It's sort of, it's the the gift I had was traveling the world, traveling the world and seeing places and being places. So I, I would say a little bit, I'm an adventurer, I'm a wanderer. You know, I'm a curious person at heart and I, I'm always exploring the other. And, and that's probably why mm. I'm having a conversation with you, a stranger on the street, and want to hear your story that was passed on to me from my parents. Yeah, you mentioned how when your father was given a di- a terminal diagnosis, yeah. he that in that moment he began to live his life and he yes, took you all around the world to get to know the other. How have you redefined exactly. other? Because other is a, is a concept that has been weaponized especially in our society today, but it's one that you grew up with as something to embrace and celebrate. Yes. Yes. And to explore. I mean, I, I, you know, as you said, you know, my father did not believe we would have these conversations. He would have these conversations. And what I appreciated about the way I was raised is my parents brought us into these conversations that, you know, otherwise maybe would have been adult. I mean, we, he took me to Greece when he went to a monastery to speak to, you know, Christians well, about what it meant to be Muslim. And we're sitting in a room and I remember we're like sitting there it was the first time I ate fresh al dente pasta. And we're in this island of Hania near Crete and 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 here's my father and, and other fellow Muslims would say to him, like, why have these conversations? Why go into these places? It's not like you're gonna convert people to Islam. He says, No, but I wanna understand what they believe because there are so many common values here. And even, and this is not even necessarily a religious uh, approach. I remember, I mean, people have asked me, it's not been often, but people have asked me what it was like, you know, to interact with President Bush's administration. And he's a Republican, mm. obviously a different, you know, a different uh, uh, kind of uh, political perspective from me. But 
I always believed, and I do believe that George W. Bush, he loved, he was a patriot, he loved his country. We just have different ways of, you know, getting, you know, to the end cause or the end result. And so is he the other? Yes. But knowing and understanding and working um, with and exploring is something my father really pushed us to do. Mm. And I'm glad I did. Well, that's- I'm, I'm glad I did. I'm, there are very few places I go into nor that I'm not comfortable I, you know, can sit at a table anywhere in the world. It's why I write the story about being at Buckingham Palace and having dinner. But I can also be at a, you know, go to Afghanistan, sit in Kabul at a restaurant with women and just go home to Pakistan and my mother's family. You know, we, you know, sit on the floor and like to have our shy and, you know, just and I am home in Mm. just about every place. I mean, there is a pro- like a saying of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him that is like live in this world as a traveler and i think that when we take it almost very literally it becomes this expansion of life just experiencing life over and over and over again and knowing that you can find home in people and it's also it's a forever learning process and there i mean you talk a lot about balance and and i think that that is a forever learning journey. Um, it's interesting that you brought up the former president, George W. Bush. And um, because as I'm working on this media investigation, he's been coming up in the conversation a lot and the story lines that he was responsible for starting and for enforcing. And so, I mean, as someone who has been in intimate spaces with people who have been responsible for a lot of harm to not only just just communities around the world, but specifically, I mean, you were Muslim and your parents came here from India and Pakistan to um, become professors and to become scholars of knowledge. And you still carry like this outlook of openness in spaces where people are not as open. Like how, where was the, how did you find balance in that? And and now when you approach like feelings towards it, when you recognize the harm that people have done and their humanity at the same time, where do you go? Well, I write, you know, I write in, um, and is, is you're a hundred percent right. I mean, that, that in terms of how my, my, my parents approached us to be kind of, uh, Confident, you know, and I don't know if it is. I write um, a passage in the book about when my father had his kidney transplant, and I lived in the United States for a few months, and I did have a, a, I did have a hard time adjusting culturally to being in this country. You know, I think one of actually an advantage I had is this is my personal opinion is I did for the most part spend most of my time in a community that was very international. We were all mm-hmm. just growing up, all from different spaces and places young girls at this international school that were from all over the world. So I don't know if that gave me when I landed at 17 in Washington, D.C., sort of this confidence in myself and who I was, where I came from and what I believed in. Like, yeah, this is what we do. We fast for 30 days, you know, every year. It's called Ramadan. Like, I have to go and pray. So can I pray in the conference room? You know, a lot of the book, the book was very long and is still very long and I had to cut it. But, you know, I did write about my experience as a Muslim in the White House walking in in 1996. And I did feel 
then. And because that's the, you know, and I, I walked in, I, I had no real political affiliations, Nora. I didn't know if I was a Democrat. I wasn't raised with any kind of political party, but I felt like it was a cause that where there were people trying to understand the other. The first, um, it was actually back then it was Eid. They didn't uh, celebrate Iftar in the administration. The very first, you know, Eid celebration was, you know, Hillary uh, hosted as first lady. And then we would have it every year. And it, by the way, it's a tradition that continues until the day. And I think for me, one of the greatest um, honors that I had was being surrounded by people who worked in a National Security Council and in a First Lady's office and really in a White House that said, okay, she's got something different. Even though I was a kid, I was 21 years old when I walked into the White House. I know. What do you think it was about you? I think, I mean, look, I think I was really the other. I mean, I really, and I and I had this weird, like, even though I was insecure about being, you know, you're walking on Air Force One, you're walking upstairs in the residence. Like, these are, these are pinch me moments. The book, I tell the story about the very first official thing I was asked to do was to greet the, Beng- the Bengali, you know, prime minister, the first Bangladeshi, you know, uh, woman prime minister, Sheikh Hasina. And that's, that wasn't me. Somebody said, oh, she's... This young woman's Muslim, and here we have this head of state who's a woman. You know, Huma should do the greet. And I, to me, that back then was like the gold standard of really trying to understand, well, what is this? You know, I remember I was actually in the Netherlands um, when King Hussein of Jordan died. And growing up in Saudi Arabia, I mean, King Hussein was sort of seen as this you know, this real great champion of peace. And it was, I was so, I remember being really like shattered about it. And, and Hillary and the whole team was about to land in the Hague and somebody pulls me aside and they're like, Huma, go get your luggage. You're coming with us to this funeral. Threw me on the first lady of the United States' plane, landed in Amman. I went, I prayed Noor in one, in the funeral, in the funeral, the Janazah prayer for King Hussein in one of the mosques. Like, there really was sort of an embracing and an understanding of, okay, you're different. We, and we want to know more. This is so different and interesting. And, you know, and I, so I, I, I write a lot about that and how I was invited to Camp David by President Clinton. And those were really direct, honest conversations. Obviously, you know, that, um, that was hard because it failed. And Noor, I also wrote, and I'm curious, of, you know, just how fellow uh, Arabs or Muslims feel about this. I wrote about what it was like to go to Jerusalem for the first time in my life, mm. in my 20s. Yeah. I mean, I found a letter I wrote my mom. I found it after I turned the book in from the Jerusalem Hilton in December 1998. It was my first trip to Tel Aviv in Jerusalem. And I was about to go. No, I had already done. I had visited Masjid al-Aqsa, the, you know, the third holiest mosque in you know, my faith. And I said to my mom, this is a life-changing experience. So to go from that to what happened in the Bush administration, boy, yeah, that was really hard. I mean, I, I write the scene in the book about my Syrian friend calling me before that Iraq vote saying, I hope she votes against this war. And can you imagine? I knew how she was going to vote. I knew it. Mm. And so to me... There are some, th- and of course, I express my opinion. If I don't know if you watched my uh, event with Hillary last night, I don't have a problem expressing my opinion to my boss. But you know, she made the decision well. Yeah, that what she w- does it mean to disagree with Hillary Clinton, for you especially? <laughs> 
it was it was it was um what is it like to disagree with her we we have had some you know uh animated differences about things this look the vote came at a time i was i was young i was you know idealistic i i told her my point of view she's always been one of those people who takes a broad you know, uh, set of advisors' opinions. Like, she wants to hear from people. She went to a lot of intelligence hearings. I think now, or, or meetings and briefings, I mean, I think now it's a fact. Now we know it was not only misinformation, it was just flat out wrong. I mean, we went into a war that we should have never gone into, and we stayed, I think, if we've learned anything from Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, particularly Afghanistan, we, this country, we can't go into other countries and assume that they want to have a form of government that we think is best mm. and to live the way we think is best. Well, and, and you I know had to that, go to those countries. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I write a scene in the book where I go to Iraq in 2005 that I still get emotional about, you know, because I would go to these places and people – the locals didn't know whose side I was on. I mean, I write about going to Jeddah and like the Saudi protocol officer putting me on the Saudi side of the thing. So to be in these places and this woman, I remember it was 2005 where they're on a Codel. Obviously, this, their war in Iraq was already deteriorating, as you well know, in 2005. And this woman who had been a senior woman in government before puts her hand on mine as we leave and says, can you, I never imagined I would live a life in Baghdad that I would be scared to get in my car and drive home or anywhere. And she said to me, do you know what I mean? And I said, Ewa, yes. And the truth is, I have no idea. You know, I'm mm. trying to make a connection. I mean, it was so hard. I mean, these were hard experiences. And I, I you know, there's a whole scene in the book I write where here I am. I am with, you know, the most, you know, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, John McCain, with Hillary Clinton, with all the Secret Service, with American, the most powerful military force in the world, and I'm leaving. These situations have been extremely hard for me, but I will tell you one thing. I've never been afraid to express my opinion. I've never, and this goes throughout. I mean, the entire chapter is about the time as Hillary's Secretary of State, during the Arab Spring, during the Muslim Brotherhood accusations. Which, you know, I, I've been careful about saying this because when the Muslim Brotherhood accusations were just thrown out there by Michelle Bachman and these five Republican Congress members, it wasn't just about me. There were other Muslims who were targeted, Muslims in government, serving their government, who were attacked. And I don't like to bring them into this, but it was like this broad kind of assault on the community. Mm. So it's, it, it's hard, but, but my big but here is that's why it's so important to be at the table. It's so important to be part of those conversations. It's so important to speak up. And here, that's what I'm doing. I'm, that's why I've been doing this for two weeks with such, you know, passion. I know. And that's, and it's so, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for being so open about sharing all of this. Of course, like, there's so many more details and so many more stories that you write about and you talk about. And, and the book is called Both And, which is my favorite memoir title. Like that was actually the first thing that I noticed, Both And, A Life in Many Worlds. And that's because the concept of paradox is something that I've been really um, 
considering. And it is a freeing concept if you really think about it. Because not like when you let go of good, bad, right, wrong, and you just see things as they are and approach things individually, you know that every single person, every single experience can exist both and. It can exist in multiple facets. It can be, it can have, it can be harmful and it can be helpful. Like these are things that are very clear and it's important for us to take an approach in thinking that way so that we can make better decisions. And, and I want to read some of your writing to you because it, it's, it's based on what you just talked about. This is a thing that really stood out to me. And I love to read um, people their book because I want you to know that people are reading it. But also, um, when you were talking about what you can, what, as you considered what serving at state in the State Department meant, you thought about, you thought about the U.S. and you thought about um, how you and your family got here and how you've benefited from living here. And then what you write is, I also thought about the Palestinians I met who lived under an Israeli occupation. My visits to Pakistan with cousins who politely pointed out that America had caused plenty of problems for their sovereign nation. My girlfriends in Saudi who resented the non-Muslim world for telling them they were backwards because they covered their hair, but who were raising sons to ship off to military academies abroad. And then you continue about the other things that you thought about, how you, what it would have happened if your mother studied in the Philippines instead of accepting a Fulbright to Philadelphia. And you go on and on, and then you say, and you ask this question, was America the problem or the solution? And you go back to this thing that you learned from childhood, which is, and you write, that despite its imperfections, America's imperfections, there is still no country in the world that could compete with the values of the American ideal. And I, and I notice your intentionality with how you write that. You don't say with the values of America or today's America. You write the American ideal. And, and that clearly is for a reason. And you've seen that more intimately than most. So today I want to know what is the American ideal, in your opinion, given the state of our culture and our society today? And how does, how does that ideal fit people like you and I in it? Well, is it, I, those, are, those were intentional words. I did use it, the American ideal. I mean, I think about what my parents left their countries for, but this notion of possibility, of equality, of freedom, of education, you know, I mean, I, um, I include the story in the book, which you obviously know is, um, I take great issue um, when people um, say anything negative about our religion, but when I, especially when I remind them that the very first word revealed in our religion is read. Read. Read, mm-hmm. which the angel Gabriel said to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in that cave in Mount Hera. And he was illiterate. And he said, I cannot read. So to me, like that's why when I say in my book, education was a really a religion for my family. It is the, you know, it is the, the beginning of my faith. And it is really important. And so I think about, you know, that kind of being an organ, certainly an organizing principle and value, because for a long time the United States, you know, has been considered to have the best, you know, educational institutions. But 
it isn't perfect. I mean, I think that's kind of what I want. Why I go back to what is what is the American ideal? We're all struggling. I mean, we we talk about. I tell the stories about living in Michigan in the '70s, and my parents were really welcomed with warmth and hospitality. But at the same time, the minute an Arab man was painting our shutters outside, somebody called 911 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, because they assumed it was a burglar you know, painting the outside of her house, you know, so my, even then, you know, it's obviously, even my parents like thought it was perfect, but they, they knew, they, they knew there were imperfections. I mean, my response to that is really kind of how I end the book in, 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 and because public service is such a big part of my life. It is why participation and visibility to me is so important. In 2007, when Hillary was running for president and somebody said, um, and I, somebody said, we need diversity on the road. Somebody said, in, within the campaign? Yes, from the campaign said, we need to get some more diversity on the road. And I raised my hand and I said, well, what about me? And the answer was, well, you don't count. And the truth, I mean, it's true. It was true. I mean, in 2008, I mean, Muslims, South Asians, people from, you know, my part of the world did not vote in big enough numbers um, for it to. Is that what they meant by you don't count? Yes. Like, what does that mean? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, it completely from a political sense is that in for for the Democratic Party for the most part, you know, with you know African American, Latinos, Hispanics. I mean, when you're thinking about diversity, it fits it fits very specific boxes. But Asians, South Asians, certainly not Muslims. You know, we're not voting, and we're not large enough blocks of the voting population to make a difference anywhere. And fast forward, 2020, you look at the research from what happened for Joe Biden in places like Arizona, like Michigan, those communities voted in numbers far higher and arguably did make a difference. And so to me, it's, it's, a, constant, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, and, um, but it goes back to how you started the question, Noor. It is the both and, it is the paradox, it isn't perfect. But we just have to keep trying and keep raising our voices and showing up and being there. I am so honored that when I walked in in 1996, there weren't a lot of people like me. You walk into the administration now, there are plenty of people like me. And that's amazing. Amazing. Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. I think about this concept a lot and I talk about it a lot, which is horizontal hostility and I, and hmm. how it applies to the quote Muslim community. So horizontal hostility, and I've defined it many times on the podcast and for context, it's hostility between people within um, people who have like similar values, similar moral, hmm. similar background. And we know that, with it like within Muslims specifically Muslim Americans there when you are a public figure there tends to be hostility between them and between the community and the public figures and stuff and it, and it does come from this scarcity mindset because there isn't a lot of people 
in those positions to begin with. So if you are in those positions, there's a lot of pressure to do things a very specific way without the context of understanding the systems that that people are playing within, if that makes sense. Right, right. What, and, and something that stands out to me is like your reference to the, the like, how you appreciated the ummah or the feeling in the concept of the Muslim ummah, which ummah is like a more precious term for community. Yeah. And how you found that within Hillary land. Yes. What is your relationship with understanding ummah been within the, the Muslim American sphere? And have you found hostility within that space? I feel like we can talk not- about that since we're both in this space. So, and I'm like, I can be <laughs> right. honest about this. I think if there is hostility, it is not hostility that um, I, has been expressed to me directly. So I wouldn't know. Um, I wow. don't. Um, pe- people are often well, but see, here's the perks thing. of people you are, getting social media like last. I month. was about to say. I was about to say. I was about to say. <laughs> That, that's the advantage. I, I, I didn't I don't look at social media. I don't I mean, I, I do now, but I was really off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 2016, it was so bad, nor I mean, just the the um, anyway, the, the hate and the vitriol, which unfortunately is now no one is surprised when you say that, that there's hate and vitriol. But back then it was still kind of a, kind of a new thing when uh, some of these social media platforms had just uh, had just come to life. Um, I have to say, for me, when I have been with the Muslim community, in whether it's New York or D.C., or just been with my Muslim friends, I mean, I went and did my first event um, at George Washington University two nights ago and talked about my experience with the Muslim Students Association in Washington. Mm-hmm. Like, it was still, and actually, one of my friends from that time, we, I'm on a WhatsApp chain with all the Muslims from... <laughs> um, you know, college and their MSAs messages that came flooding love in. love WhatsApp groups. Oh my God. And I have to tell you, like, <laughs> I, yes, apparently yes. And now I'm yeah, added. Yeah, it's a thing. And um, it's a thing. And I wanted, I mean, I wanted to just, you know, it brought me to t- tears so many times, like the messages that they sent to me personally about wow. how they felt. So I have only felt that love and, um, and then whenever I would go to iftars or, you know, the annual events at the White House, I, you know, I, I write the story in the book in 2012 after all these um, allegations walking into that room for an iftar with the Muslim, you know, and sort of that's a more national kind of Muslim community. I felt for the first time in a long time, I was with my people and mm. I felt, I feel a peace. I feel a serenity. That's the word. I feel a serenity and a confidence um, when I'm in that community. So if there has been hostility, it has not been hostility I've had to endure, thankfully. Um, but you're asking well, a even, good and question. Even, I'm sure there is. I think it's something that comes, I mean, obviously it's come up in my life a lot. and I'm sure. Um, and it's something that I've like spoken to a lot of people about just who have gone through similar things in their own communities. And it's also helped mm. me redefine community. Like now I recognize yeah. that Oman community like that doesn't mean it only has to be Muslims like my closest group of friends is that's like the real life diversity quote unquote like it's people and and I'm not talking about like where people are from I'm talking about like the kinds of people like the humanity of people on on with different life experiences and 
it's always been something that's like so welcoming and, and open and and that requires openness. And I think that I mean, the, yes. even the iftar that you're mentioning, like that was always a point of controversy in in. Yeah. the DMV community and stuff. And people have, people are, have always talked about like, I'm protesting this iftar, I'm not going to right. this or I'm not doing this or yes, I am. And, and then when you do, there's this whole contention. I mean, when you see, when you see things like that play out where it's like, we know we need change and we know we need more representation. And yet a lot of times people choose to stay outside of it or, um, I don't know, try to, build outside of that traditional system what either frustrations opinions thoughts confusions or what clarity can you provide for people who especially I would say Muslim Americans who are thinking about getting into policy making and politics and know that they're there it's going to be a both and you're going to have your foot in multiple worlds because yeah. that's the only way to do it and it's the only way to get things done. You know, I um, I, <clears throat> I do share in the book um, my experience in 2016 when I, when I was sent um, around the, um, the country on behalf of the campaign to speak to the Muslim communities in different places around the country. I was in Michigan. <coughs> I was in Florida. I was in California. Um, and I was, I have to say, I was met with a combination of skepticism of um, why does this really matter, um, you know, to participate. And in fact, I remember, I, and I share this story, I remember somebody raising their hand saying, I mean, this is a lovely speech, but you're being a bit dramatic. Like, none of this is really, you know, going to happen. There's no, there's no such thing as a Muslim ban possible. Like, I'm an American. And um, this is in 2016, during the campaign. And but there had already almost, been a Muslim ban. <laughs> Well, no, 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 no. This is during the election. No, no, election, no. I know, but like during George Bush's administration. Oh, oh, oh. Well, there right was. Right. So, like, Hello. it's like yes. we also yes, yes. don't. I guess it wasn't really. Yes, we don't. Right. Memories are short. That's exactly right. We didn't call. It wasn't called a Muslim ban. But you are a hundred percent correct. Um, so it's it's I I always felt it was sort of this apathy. You know, this story got cut from the book. But when I first got involved. Because, you know, when I was growing up in my community, it was sort of to be successful, and this was usually directed towards the boys, you were three things. You were a doctor, lawyer, engineer is what you aspired to be, right? And yeah, did you have that getting, pressure? No, my parents were like, you can do anything you want. You have, we only have one requirement. One requirement. You have to Education. be educated. Education. Everything else is your choice, you know? And I think I'm actually the least educated member of my family. Everyone else has a <laughs> PhD, a medical doctor, you know, and I have my bachelor's. Everyone else is, you know, far more lettered than me. And, you know, even my mother, you know, she was the first woman to get a PhD in her family, but all of her sisters got their master's at least, if, you know. Wow, so, mashallah. Yeah, mashallah. But, um, but um, I found when I first got involved in politics, there was like some, even when I would go back for like family events in the community in New Jersey or Queens, there was, there was always this like, huh, what do you, like, what is not a really understanding of what, what public service meant, what serving in government went, meant, why it mattered. But at the same time, Nor, every time I would leave, some uncle or some auntie would say, oh, tell Hillary she should do this or tell. Oh my gosh, the tell the, so and so. Tell, tell them they must, this shouldn't. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So at the, on the one hand, you don't think what I do is, you know, 
I don't fit That's any hilarious. of the right boxes. But on the other, it's like tell, tell, tell. But you know what? You can make. And to make, you have to participate. And the conversations are not easy. And um, But they're so important in just being at the table. And I look at the elected officials who are from, you know, our community. And it is hard. They are so, you know, kind of, uh, uh, as, as I guess the word that you used is they're kind of judged no matter what. It's why are they doing this and why are they not doing that? But it is a both and. There's no other way to make it work. It is what It was the driving force behind my dad's journal, which is you cannot take yourself from wherever land in another country and say, I, I want to live exactly the way I lived in Saudi Arabia or Morocco or India. It's not possible. That's the dichotomy of the East versus West. It's both and. Don't give up your cultural, religious, social values that are important to you, but figure out how to participate in the community successfully. It's the only way forward. And my father was right. I mean, in 1977, he's writing articles saying, if we don't figure out how Muslims can properly assimilate culturally, you know, socially in Europe, we're going to have problems. And now look what's happening in the council flats in London and in Paris. Like, y- you have to, you can't isolate. In my, this is all my opinion, obviously, but I don't believe you can isolate and be successfully participating in society. Yeah, I mean, that's a conversation we actually have in our family a lot, too. And I think that, yeah, again, sure. context is really key here because... A lot of times people think that assimilating means abandoning your values and abandoning your identity and and be, and looking like people and walking like people and talking like people and and to me I'm like and I, I've always seen it as like actually taking the time first of all I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say but taking the time to figure out who you are like there are there's almost two billion muslims around the world which means there's two billion ways to be a muslim that people are practicing being a muslim you and i are do not practice being a muslim the same me and family members don't practice being muslims like it's so it's so intimate and it's so private and and yes culture gets involved obviously we have an incredibly diverse if not the most diverse faith in the world and so there's so much complexity behind it because when you even when you refer to the quote muslim community There are millions of communities within that. And so there's so many layers to that. And and, and this is something that I've actually been going through a lot this last year. And I would want, I'd love to know how this showed up maybe in the process of you writing the book, but I am constantly thinking about now who, who's Noor? Like, who am I? I've been defined and labeled by people constantly so many times in my life People have called me names or, or told me that this is who I am or it, maybe even in a way that they thought was thoughtful. And now I look at all of that and I'm like, okay, great. So how would I do it? How would I write my own bio? How would I identify? Mm-hmm. What things do I relate to? And how can I bring that sense of individuality to right. the table? And not only that, but use that confidence in the individuality to let people know that what it means to be a part of the community, what it means to quote assimilate is that I get to show up here vocal and myself, but and right. and open to welcoming everyone else too. 
because that's that's the world that I want to live in, the one where I can show up as myself and, and, and be welcomed with open arms and curiosity that is loving and intentional. And, and in order to do that, I have to do that for everyone else too. That's exactly right. You said it so beautifully. And, you know, it's why I write. And look, there's so many choices and decisions I made in my own life, just like you, that it absolutely are being judged and have been judged. And sometimes silence is the most, um, you know, uh, 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 what is it, uh, most powerful bullet, or I don't know what the right word is. Like, you, you get the, the stony silence. You know what's actually, I'll give you a little quote. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something me. that Adam told me. He said to me last month, actually, and I've been thinking about it a lot. And he was like, somebody asked him, like, how do you get people to change? And he was like, mm. by staying silent. Like mm, you mm, just mm. be yourself. It's really beautiful. And yes. you exist, but you want people yes. to change. Stay silent. That's that, that's right. I think, I mean, that's that's 100% right. And, you know, but I, I opened the book with a note I found of my dad's and I, my father's. And I actually found it after he died in a folder. But the note basically says... Um, essentially that you are responsible only in the end to yourself, your principles and values, and ultimately to God. That, and even, even, you know, even when we do community prayer, communal prayer, as you know, we stand shoulder to shoulder, but it is a singular conversation that we are having with a higher power. Yeah. Yep. Right? I mean, ultimately, what is Muslim prayer? It's a meditation, and so I, I really do, I feel like that letter that I found 25 years or 26 years after my father had died was like he left that for us knowing that we would one day find it. That I, I keep centering myself around that, which mm. is I want to live in the community. I want to be a successful participant in the community. But ultimately, I have to live with myself. I, it's my own principles and values, and I am, I am answerable. If in my, the way my, my faith belief my own belief is that in the end, I'm responsible only for myself. And what do we say? I mean, what yeah. is the other Prophet Muhammad um, quote? Uh, sorry, there's so many. Obviously, hadith that says actions are but by intention. Which mm. is what I put in there. And so as, if, as long as you know what your intentions are and, you know, I, that to me, it's the only way to kind of live in solitary, you know, in peace with oneself. And speaking of peace with oneself, um, you have gone on one heck of a journey to get into a place where you are able to recognize peace within oneself. I mean, hearing yeah. you now so clearly and from this this point of healing, it is very proving that anybody can get through anything because you have gone through some of the hardest things that anyone could ever go through. And I'm sure that you are st- like, there are moments where you are still processing trauma. It's interesting when people write about trauma through a healing lens. And hmm. when you read about it, it almost sounds like fiction. And then you're like, wait, but like they still carry that. Like that is still yeah. a part of them. That is still a yeah. part of their existence. Yeah. Um, and some of the hardest and lowest points of your life were only a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. How, first of all, in those moments, and you can speak to the moments if you'd like to, however you want. What were the conversations you were having with God? If you had so much trust and faith and what we call in Islam, tawakkul, yeah. how do mm. you communicate to God 
for giving you tests that sometimes are hard to wrap your mind around? Well, I think it, um, uh, it helps to... It helps to believe that everything happens for a reason. I just do. I do believe in fate. I do. And it doesn't mean I didn't question. I did. Boy, I did. Why? Why is this happening? I went through those moments of what did I do, you know, to deserve this? And it started, I mean, for me, it was seven. It was when I was 17, when I lost my father. And I, I write the scene in the book about as... You know, I knew things were bad in the hospital, and I go out and I make a deal with God. Mm. I will, I will be so good. I will do everything <laughs> right if you let him live. So, and I, you know, it got cut from the book, but I, I did write about sort of I was angry with God when He took my dad when I was seventeen. Why? You know, this whole and. You know, I'm sure you would get it. I'm not sure everyone would get it. But I write the stories of like going to, you know, the funeral and, and people saying, you know, you have to accept this as God's will. Oh, my God. And yeah. as a teenager, I'm like, I am not. No, I am well, not accepting this. That's you know? because that is and also so, a big spiritual bypass. It's like and which is a common yes. thing, I think, in any faith community where yes. you're like, pray the depression away, pray the anxiety away. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yes, like prayer helps and also you have to move through it. But and it's also how we frame things, like especially when it comes to death, which is I think that is in Islam, like we talk about death more than most people do because it's yeah. something that we don't see as it's not a I don't see it as a bad thing. Bad it's thing. something that you can never right. be totally prepared for. But again, it's that like it's that framing of like even when 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 you said like it and that gave me a pang in my heart, like I will be so good. And it's yeah, right. it's how we f- it's it's viewing tests as punishment. Yes. And going exactly through hardship right. as punishment. That's exactly And we have this right. saying that, you know, God doesn't give a person more than they can yeah. handle. And I'm like, God must have really thought Huma was super strong. <laughs> <laughs> like but but you know, Nora, I don't you know, I appreciate you saying that, but I did I I feel like uh, you know, I, I talk about this so two things because you you mentioned it and I never actually answered it, but you know, one um I thought you said it beautifully this notion of the the community, the ummah not, you know, doesn't have to be something, you know, specific, but for me that ummah of Hillary Land helped me and I think um having a community that I knew was always there and always forgiving and always present I think is so important. I think the power of adult female friendships in particular, at least for me, has has really proven to be, you know, something that I've needed and that I've really counted on and that um, I'm, I'm lucky to have. But I think also this my, this concept that my parents taught me, and I don't actually know, I you know, I imagine there's, there's a faith basis in this, but this notion of radical empathy, like I, when I, even yeah. when things were bad, I always believed that somebody else had it worse. And I don't know why, I always, like there's, yes, 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 but somebody else has this worse. And even um, on the lowest, worst days, I, I wanted to be grateful. And the one thing I was always grateful for, I found the letter, I write about this in the book too, that I wrote Anthony right before everything, you know, kind of exploded in our marriage. Which time? Where, you know, in 2011 when I was, you know, newly <clears throat> pregnant, I'm sitting in Buckingham yeah. Palace and I'm thinking our life is so amazing. In the letter, I write, 
we have to be thankful to God. I mean, I always had so much gratitude for when I had good things. Like, thank you so much. Like, this, we're so lucky that I, I just, and maybe that helped balance me or helped center me. And when I started embracing therapy, it was something actually that Hillary told me for the first time, which is, yes, it's going to be okay, but you have to recognize something's happening to you. It doesn't make your trauma less. You are still experiencing trauma, even though so many other yeah. people are experiencing trauma. But I do think to some extent... Comparative suffering. Comparative suffering helped me. I think that's a, a, like a, be- a very apt term here. And maybe as a, re- as a result of being the child of somebody who was terminally ill. Like I grew up with a father who could not carry me. I, mean, I have no memory. I adored my dad. I would crawl into his lap and feel his bony legs and his hunched spine. I mean, he was, but to me, he was normal. He was the most powerful dad in the world, but Mm. he was ill. My whole life, he was ill and coughing and going to hospitals. And that's why I tell the story about in 2018 when I went, because you said some of your lowest moments were recent. Yes, 2018, I went home to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, cleaned out my dad's closet, found all the undershirts that we were gonna give away to charity, stained with blood and he was always immaculately dressed so but he had kidney transplants and surgeries and ulcer surgery and to have that outlook on life just that sheer joy at the privilege of being alive and so i don't know why to me nor health like the gratitude to be healthy to have healthy family is so paramount for me Mm. physical health and my mental health, when it took a real, real deep, deep dive, and that was, you know, a couple of years ago, after everything, after, you know, all of a sudden from going from being in a two-parent relationship, Anthony was in, you know, way in prison. I was a single parent. I was struggling with work. We didn't have a campaign or like a, a big office we were going to every day. It really broke me. And I was careful about how I shared the story but I do write about standing on a subway platform and thinking, can I just, wow, like it's mm. too hard. It is too hard. But the minute I thought it, it was only seconds. And I don't you know, want to suggest that you know, I was dealing with deeply depressive thoughts for an extended period of time. The minute I thought it, I knew I needed help, Nora. I knew I did. And that's when I sought professional, like real professional health, even though I'd been in and out of therapy since 2011. I don't think I'd ever really understood it or appreciated it. I came from a culture and a community where you didn't talk to strangers about, about your, your problems. problems. Oh, abs- absolutely not. But I needed it and I did it. And boy, I mean, it was brutal. It was brutal to go through it. But it, it was the only way through and as a friend of mine told me you can continue your life of pain shopping trying to figure out you know these betrayals or you can just be released from the trauma Mm. that's why the last chapter is called suffering is optional pain might be necessary but suffering is optional hi i hope you're enjoying the storytelling session i just wanted to share something with you If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You. 
And we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at ISYfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. Reading the Suffering is Optional chapters really interesting it's just again it's so open and um it's easy to find yourself in a lot of the stories like as a reader and that one specifically is like a shaking reminder and um and I appreciate you saying that you thought very hard about how you were going to write about these things because it it is important to think about how you write about trauma and especially because you were writing this book while going through like you were writing it on and off of course throughout that and yes what I mean what did it how does it feel to know that you wrote what you've written and 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 processed so much of it with therapy with friends with community and faith. and faith and you know still have people ask questions or attempt to write your story for you like one of the questions that I think that I was I kept getting confused about that you were that you've been getting asked is yeah. why did you stay and I yeah. just thought in my head I'm like isn't that a question we don't ask people anymore like that is absolutely not our business why someone stays in a relationship Uh, that one has surprised me and everyone has asked and it is you know I when I was started doing research for this book and I've said this in the interviews that uh, people have said you know uh, my the the, researcher was helping me says oh my god I looked at all the headlines about you the last 10 years and the most common headline is what is wrong with her truly and what is she thinking and to be a woman in this world, particularly in this country and maybe in the world, I mean, I, you are judged no matter what you do. Yeah. You just are. And so for me, even though every single time I had to deal with a challenge in my marriage or in my relationship or in my job, I'm just trying to figure out the next right step. It's not, oh, it's been six months. It's been a year. It's been, you know, that one, the, 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 that question I think I've gotten in pretty much every interview and it's um, women and men and particularly women and to be in 2021 and to have to answer that those questions I I yeah I'm I'm with you on that one but I answer it I mean I do answer it and I think and 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 you know I wonder I mean but would you ever answer it like would you ever consider answering it with why are we still asking this question because that to me like there's an opportunity (laughs) there there is an opportunity yeah. because it really, I mean, I recently read, and it may, be, it may have been Nedra Tawab, who's an amazing therapist. We actually had her on the podcast who wrote this, but it, I don't, I'm not, I don't, can't remember exactly, but it's like, you're enough 
like is not the other person's enough like it has when you're in traumatic situations it's 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 similar to domestic violence like you can't tell people why did you stay why didn't why aren't you leaving and and the question I think lacks any support that people can use during that time like so how what are the ways like what is the conversation you would have preferred people ask or the question that you would have preferred people ask slash and what is um like what is the conversation that's missing around situations of betrayal and trauma that are publicized nor i think that uh, i wish the conversation would be how 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 does one make it through how how do you do that how do you approach this you know one of the things i, I do share an interview so i'm sure you've heard of this i cannot tell you how many people I've heard since 2011. I write some of the stories of the book about people who stopped me on the street, stopped me on airplanes, stopped me in places. Since the, I have been, the book has been out or I've been doing interviews for two weeks, I have been flooded with messages. People saying, in the same situation, feeling judged. You know, the reason I always do the, the, the flip and say, you guys are looking at this from a 2021 perspective. In 2011, yeah. that's not what people were saying. People did not understand these online betrayals were this whole new world. We understood traditional infidelity. Yeah. Frankly, yep. it's almost like accepted, not even accepted, assumed traditional infidelity. Okay. And now all of a sudden it's like, wait, is that cheating to be texting somebody? Right. It was a different wow. conversation yeah. in 2011. So in 2013, when Anthony ran for mayor and everyone sort of, you know, hung me, whatever I was, became the woman who walked around with the scarlet letter, most people were kind of um, supporting the idea that this is an individual who can get back and serve in, you know, in community. So for me, I, you know, because the one piece of advice I do give people who ask me is allow yourself to feel. I feel like I... I carried, I compartmentalized. I had so much anger and I had so much bitterness for so long. And I held it, held it in. Did it come out in weird ways? I would take it out on him for sure. And, but it it never made me feel better. Never. Because it was still, like you you ruined our life. It's like, it didn't do anything. (laughs) It didn't, didn't help make me feel better. So I would just be yelling and screaming and saying, why are you doing this? Or why did you do it? Or you ruined our life. And, you know, I write in the book about being disinvited. I mean, we got cut off from, you know, communities of people, which we would go to a food bank. We went to a food bank to volunteer. And after showing up a few times and going to some big event, they said, you know, you start, please don't come back. Okay. So we're on the one hand, we're in a bunker together because we're in this, we're in a bunker because everyone else, it's us against the world. And on the other, I have so much anger towards him. And I do think a lot of, you know, I'm not trying to gender the conversation, but I do think a lot of women also go through this, which is they're not on the front page of the paper, but they do feel judged by their families and their community. They feel shame. I lived in shame. I don't, I no longer live in shame. I lived in shame. And I wish the conversation would be more about how do you make it through? I made it through. It was really, really hard, but I did it. I forced myself to have the conversation. I forced myself to feel, to be vulnerable. How did you do that? To say I had to do it 
with professional help. I really okay. did. Even with my background, I had to go to a therapist. And, 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 and Anthony had to come to the table too. I mean, we, it's called, what we ended up doing is what is formally called a disclosure process. It's a long process. Some people do it. Some people can't. I mean, I have friends who say, I can't. I don't want to know. I can't. It's too hard. I lived that way for a long time. <coughs> and, um, and I think in the end, um, apologize for the sirens, it, it, it did save me. I mean, I, I, people would tell me while I was going through it, I would say, this is so hard. And they would say, it's going to take a few months. But trust me, you're going to feel better. And I didn't believe them, Nor. I didn't believe them. Mm. Until one day I woke up and I just felt this sense of lightness, this sense of <clears throat> because a lot of people who go through this and you know you're you're you know um, you're so much younger than me. But when you have kids, it's so different. And for me, it's also about like I don't want to repeat the cycle. That's why you know I don't you know I don't know if you've made it to the part of the book where I, I write about taking Jordan to to visit his father in prison, and because I thought wow, this would be hard. so shameful. So, yeah. oh my God, what are people going to say? What if there are pictures of him at, at prison? And what I, so I, I made a promise not to take him. And what I found is that it was actually not good for my son to not see his father. And he went and he was so happy and he was so proud. And he took a picture with his dad and he put it up in his room. And I end this chapter with shame is something we teach our children not something born of their authentic experiences. Yeah. Yep. So, so much about it for me is to make sure my kid is okay. Wow. I actually just posted this on my Instagram story, and it's a quote from Adam Grant, who's also a guest on this oh. podcast. Oh and he God. writes... I'm a big Adam Grant fan. Yeah. And this spoke to me so much. Resilience is not about immunity to pain. It is mm. about finding the strength to withstand strain. You do not need to overcome all of your hardships now. You just have to carry them until your future self can handle them. The burdens that seem today, you, heavy today, usually feel lighter tomorrow. And this is like the little image. Oh my God. I, I, it is beautiful. And so, I'm just nodding. I'm, I mean, he is, I think he is so wise and so right. And I think that quote could be written about me. For sure. Mm. You know, Do you I feel lighter? Ready. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I say this everywhere. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm doing the thing with you that terrifies me the most right now. <laughs> Having a conversation, what? knowing people are going to listen to it, being on camera. You know, just the whole thing is so not where I was comfortable. And I'm so happy to be here. I'm like, I really am honored to be here with you for so long, really. I'm so honored, too. And I'm if it... it all of this, I mean, you have lived many, many lifetimes. You have already. And yet somehow after talking to you and after reading your words, it feels like a rebirth. It feels like you're, you're starting a very new, uh, ch- you're, you have taken the COVID pivot to another level. And so I got to <laughs> ask, I got to ask. going to steal that, yes. What, what do you want to be when you grow up now? Well, I thought I wanted Who to be Christiana Amanpour. <laughs> I thought I wanted to be Christiana Amanpour Don't when we I was all. in um, high school. I did an interview with her yesterday, Nor. I was so nervous because I didn't want to disappoint her. But I, I don't know. Maybe I will re-explore. Maybe she'll give me some tips afterwards. I, I went from being, I, 
I want to sort of be closed and just sort of be in service. And I kind of want to be open to everything. I don't want to run for office. I got in trouble on the Today Show when I said that. Oh, my God, I saw that. And I was like, wait, what? Do I need to ask? Yeah, I know, I know. But you know what? (laughs) You know what's so funny? I I was so cold. I was so nervous with my first live morning show. And I felt such an intensity in the room. And um, so I just said, well, if I'm doing this whole thing, you were just being open, saying yes, I was being open. And then she's like, so you're going to run for office? I'm like, yes. Wait, no, no, (laughs) No, I actually don't want to do that. It was more about like, would you consider? And you were like, I'll consider anything like you're just not going to say no. It was more. But that was what I took away from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may have said yes, but I was like, obviously, you know, where were you last (laughs) week? Because, yes, I think it's I say no to everything. No, 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 I'm not doing this. No, I'm not going there. You want me to give a speech? No. Interview? No. And now I'm I'm pretty much open to whatever. But maybe I will I would go back into journalism or go into journalism. Maybe. Um, Well, hey, I can give you some tips, too. If I, you can give me some really good tips. I, I need them. I'm just starting out, you know. No, but you I, actually, you do really well on television. I can't believe that this has been your first round of on-camera interviews. I was like, is it media training? Is it natural? Is it both? Like, you crushed it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, been I'm kind of muddling of my way through, but I've, I've been really, I've been having a good time. I actually have been surprisingly, uh, that, that was my big surprise. I'm, I've been really enjoying it. Amazing. Well, before we wrap, I want to ask some not so rapid, rapid fire questions. Oh, tell me, please. All right. Okay. Who is your, and I know this is a controversial, this is probably the most controversial Mm. question that I have asked you. Who is your go-to designer while you're on the road? Oh, this is controversial. Um, Don't make any friends mad. (laughs) <laughs> no um no you're I'm gonna make lots of friends mad I'm just kidding um, no but that's why I specifically wrote on the road like when you were when you were traveling from airplanes to trains oh, to, and oh, going to oh. whatever who are you like get me a piece uh the stuff uh, Oscar de la Renta sample sales Oscar <laughs> I mean for years shout I mean, out to Fernando and just, Laura yeah I mean just yep yeah, for sure amazing what is the best piece of advice that you have gotten from HRC? Um, take the time to take care of yourself. She mm. had to tell me that. I write the I write the scene in the book. I was it was always about work for me. I loved my job. It was always. Well, about I'm sure work. she's very she's familiar with that. Yes, yes, she is. What is a piece of wisdom that you got from your father that you often share with your son, Jordan? Your eyes are in the front of your head for a reason. So look forward, not to look backward. Focus on the future. Amazing. Wow, that's really beautiful. Thank you. What is your go-to song for joy? You want to like dance in the kitchen, sing in the shower. This is the song. Oh my God. I got to tell you something for me. I know this is going to sound cheesy, but um, because it should be something more, you know, current, I guess. But for, for me, um, it's always Adele. Adele is like my power. Like whenever I'm feeling something. You know, like the fire in the rain song. Like I'm Well, just... you know, she said like her album that's about to drop. Is about divorce, and Can't it's I like ignore. I did not know that. 
Yeah. So I'm going to find a lot of, uh, yeah. wow, <laughs> exactly. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm such a big Adele fan. I just, I feel so empowered when I listen. Even when I listen to like, hello, like I just feel so empowered mm. and happy and joyful. Soul music. That's interesting yes. because her, I don't know if she would call her music um, happy and joyful, but you can find that. It's about the reframe. It's about how about you reframe the, reframe the story. And finally, Huma, what do you know for sure? What I know for sure is I've lived an extraordinary life and I'm grateful for it. I don't know that I know anything else for sure. That's also totally okay. Yeah, no, but that's a very, that's a big question. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if I should let my guests know I'm going to ask that or if I should just do it on the spot. But then I'm like, yeah, maybe I should let them meditate on it for the week. And maybe I'm like, hey, by the way, I'm, like, I'm going to ask you the biggest question of your life. What do you know for sure? What is the, the main truth? I mean, you have, and you have, and it's interesting because your answer right now is very uh, telling of how you look at life and how you approach life, which is um, you recognize what you've already gone through in your experience. And yeah. so you're like, yep, yeah. this is what I know for sure because this is where I am right now. And it's clear that you have spent time being mindful and being embodied and um, being right here in this moment. And I thank you for being here in this moment with me today. Nora, I am so thrilled to have done this interview with you. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really am so thrilled. Thank you. Please invite me up. Please invite me up soon. You will be welcome on campus anytime. Anytime. For more Homa, you can get her new book, Both And, A Life in Many Worlds, wherever you get your books. And she's now on social media, so you can follow along where this journey takes her. As always, at your service.